good morning, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. Love this. I love all the buzzing. Love the talking, chatting. I love this church. So good to be with all of you. If you don't know me, my name is Justin. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, pastor of care and city groups specifically, and I'm so glad to be with all of you this morning. Uh, I have just really appreciated Ryan Glenn's leadership throughout as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and I love that they also give me the opportunity to step up once in a while and preach God's word as well. It's good to be back in the saddle. Good to see you all. I love this family. I love this church, and I want to go ahead and just give us a quick recap as we looked back at last Sunday. Uh, Glenn gave us a fire message starting the first half of Genesis chapter 18, and uh, basically God and a couple of angels visit Abraham and Sarah, tell them that they're going to have a son Isaac. Uh, Sarah laughs, says, God, I didn't laugh, and God says, but you did. So that's where we're picking up in the last half of chapter 18. Uh, we're going to go ahead, and as you turn there, Genesis chapter 18, I want to start off with just a personal story. Uh, recently for me, life has just been wild. There's been all kinds of things that I just, you can't write in a book um, that have just been insane. Uh, one of them being my car got stolen in the last couple weeks. Crazy. Uh, TikTok trend. Don't look it up. You'll just get angry. Um, but anyway, needless to say, uh, the cops found my car. It got towed to the impound. And for the last couple weeks, I have been trying to get it scheduled to get serviced. And so I made the appointment a couple weeks ago. It was supposed to be towed. Um, at the dealership, for the last couple weeks, I've been trying to call them. And I've probably talked to, I kid you not, 17-ish different customer service representatives. And you know how that goes. It's just a, just a joy. just makes your day. <laughs> Anytime you can just be put on hold for a few hours. Um, so I'm making all these phone calls. And not one of them can give me an update. I'm saying, hey, I made this, like, scheduled for this tow to be literally, like, a week ago. Is there any way you can just give me an update? Like, please don't put me to this voicemail and give me a false promise that you're going to call me back sometime. Just please, can you just stay on the line? Can you tell me anything about my car right now? Any updates? 17 different customer service reps go by. And finally, I get the 18th. His name is Phil. Shout out Phil, for real. This dude was the first and the only to give me any kind of service to a customer. And this dude tells me, listen, I'm going to personally make the rounds right now. I am going to walk the lot myself. And if I don't find it, I'm going to walk to our other lot, and I'm going to see if I can find it there. And he's making the route, and he calls me back about 20 minutes later. He says, hey, great news. Got an update on your car. I'm like, oh, thank you, Phil. And he's like, yeah, your car's not here. And so, <laughs> so anyway, it's not the update I want, but I say, you know what, Phil? Thanks for just doing something. Thank you for actually serving a customer as a customer service representative. <laughs> I share this story with you because I think we've all ex had experiences, maybe not with a stolen car, but with customer service, where we look at this company. And I think so often, it's not even the company's fault. Like, you know, you get a bad waiter at a restaurant, you get a bad person on the phone, and they just represent the company in such a way that, like, man, this company is the absolute worst. Like, they're just trash. But most times, it's not even their fault. It's the representative, the person, the go-between that you've had the experience with. And the reason I share this is because we're going to see this in our passage today. Abraham is going to be the go-between. He's going to be the customer service representative for God and man. And what the Bible calls this is a priest. And you don't have to think you have the white hat, the white robe, or the white square on your collar. It literally just means that you are a go-between. You're this customer service representative, representing God to people and people to God. And that's what we're going to see. So as you turn to Genesis 18... 
This matters this morning because God actually wants us to represent him well. He wants us to be priests that represent him well, but also represent people to him well. So as we go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in uh, chapter 18, verse 22. I'm just going to start by reading some of this, making observations, and we'll go from there. So verse 22 in chapter 18 says, So the men turned from there. Again, mind you, uh, the angels are turning towards Sodom after they've just visited Abraham and Sarah. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Remember, they're going towards Sodom. It's a wicked city. God has just pronounced judgment. And now Abraham's having a conversation. He continues in verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And so my initial observations, the first is that Abraham has a problem with what God's about to do, and he's not afraid to stay, stay back. And sometimes that's the best things we can do as Christians, is before we just rush on ahead with everyday life, it's just to pause, just to stop and put ourselves near God. The second thing Abraham does, not only does he stand near God, it says he draws near God. In the original Hebrew, that word is actually a legal phrase, meaning to approach the bench, as if God is this judge, which he recognized that God is. And so as he approaches the bench, uh, Abraham begins to plead with God in a way that he's crying out for justice. In, in fact, and he does it in, in a very bold way that God completely invites him to do. He actually begins to kind of remind God who he is, as if God needs reminding. But Abraham is saying, God, you are a just God. And if you're the just God that you say you are, how in the world would it be just to get rid of righteous people with the wicked? And it's interesting because Abraham has walked with God for a while. He's been close with God for years at this point. He's at all the right conditions and he's made blunders all along the way and he knows God has seen it all. He's seen that God is a righteous God, but he also knows that God is a favorable God. That God gives mercy. So in his cry for justice, he's saying, God, look at the righteous. And for the sake of those good people in that city, you must be just. But he's also, in the same breath, saying, God, be merciful. As he looks for justice for the righteous, he's saying, there's mercy for the wicked. And he's trying to keep in tension these two things. Because there's a lot of times where we look at, how can God be just and yet merciful? And how can be merciful and yet just. And that's what Abraham's trying to wrestle with. And the way he puts these two things together, justice and mercy, is he begins to look at something called righteousness. He says, God, you are a righteous God. He has seen the righteousness of God firsthand. And he says, God, I know how much you value righteousness. And so what Abraham does, he begins to run with that idea. He begins to mock up a draft to say, God, could I actually propose something to you? Because I know how much you value righteousness. Is it possible that in your justice and your mercy that you could spare the wicked on the account of 50 righteous men or women? He said, could it be that if there's 50 
good men and women, that you would spare a city of 50,000 wicked men and women. There's this new idea. Is there some way that righteousness, goodness, can be given, accredited, imputed to wicked sinners? And this is the question. And we'll get to that answer later. I want to keep going in the story because what we're seeing Abraham model for us is what the Bible calls a priest. And again, like I said, it's not the white robe or the white hat or the white square. It's, it's simply saying, God, we need someone to be the mediator. We need someone to intercede. We need someone to be the go-between between God and man and man and God. And Abraham's doing that. He's representing God. He's also ruling with God to see righteousness, justice, and mercy come together. And we see all of us actually were called to this. This is not a new concept. In fact, in the beginning, if we remember in the beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve were called to be priests. He said, subdue the earth. Multiply, be fruitful. Multiply. There's this idea of working with God and representing God to the world. And what did Adam and Eve do? They failed. They didn't trust him. They said, no, I'm not going to partner with you. I'm not going to re represent you. And they fail. They listen to the voice of Satan and they get kicked out of the garden. We see Abraham is supposed to model this, but we've already seen up to this point, the dude is a mess up. He's made blunders at every turn and he knows it. He's not the priest that we're looking for. We see later Moses will try to be the priest and he'll fail. He won't even get to enter into the promised land because of his anger and his rebellion against God. We'll see that King David, everyone thought he would be the great priest who would be in our place, and yet David would fall into murder and adultery. And so we, all of our best candidates throughout human history, the closest thing we've ever seen to righteous men, and they failed. And so who's going to step in and be the righteous priest that we all need? All of us, including us right now in this room, have been called to be that priest, and yet all of us can look at our lives, and just like Abraham, say, I messed up though. I've made a blunders at every turn. I've made poor decisions. I haven't trusted God perfectly. I haven't obeyed God perfectly. I don't even live for God. If I'm being honest, all of us can say we live to make ourselves look good. When do you ever get in an argument and say, yeah, you know what, I just want to make sure God looks good in this. Anytime, a Facebook comment, I just want to make sure God is right. No, we don't live that way. We say, I want to be right. I want to look good. I want to be impressive. And in doing so, we fail to be priests for God. We fail to represent him well. And we fail to rule with him well. And so as we continue on in the story, what's going to happen is Abraham is going to continue to press in with God. As he's having this conversation and saying, God, I don't like this. There's this tension that I, I don't know what to do with. And so as he begins to continue pressing into this proposal, what Abraham will do is, I won't read it because it's super repetitive, you can read it, though, here. It's in verse 27. He'll continue this conversation with God to say, listen, would you still spare the wicked if there were 45 people? And God says, yes, I would spare it on account of 45. And what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, yes, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And what we see in this is that as Abraham begins to press in, two things happen. As he dives in to get closer and closer to God, that there's this fear that continues to increase. 
God, please. He'll say later, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Do not get angry. And this continue, as he presses in, this, this fear of riling up God's anger and reverence for God increases. But the second thing that happens is as he increases in that, he's also driving forward in boldness. Not only does fear and reverence increase, but also boldness, a confidence. Notice he starts by going down by five, and then he goes down by ten. He's saying, okay, I'm, I'm growing in this. I, I trust you. I think I know your heart. I think you're willing to do this. And he stops at ten. And God says, yes. And what's interesting in, in all of this, Abraham is so fearful. saying, God, please don't be angry. He thinks he's riling up God's anger and asking for God to spare the wicked. But he it's quite the opposite. He's not riling up God's anger. He's only stirring up God's compassion. Notice in all of this, this was what God wanted all along from Abraham. He wants Abraham to see. He wants the readers of Genesis 18 to say, you can see my heart. Can't you hear Jesus' words? I did not come to condemn the world, but what? To save it. This has always been God's unchanging heart towards humanity. He doesn't want us to fail. He wants to spare us. And he'll do what it takes. Notice, even in the way that this conversation goes down, Abraham may have initiated the conversation, but who was the one who stayed back? God gave him space right away. He said, I, I know this troubles you. I know, I know you have some things in your heart right now, and I'm going to give you space, Abraham. I'm going to stay back with you. The angels can go to Sodom. You and I, let's talk. And he does this. And so often he does this with us. And yet how many times do we stay back with God? How many times, rather, instead of praying and, and staying back with God, we just keep rushing ahead, keep trying in our own strength, keep plugging away, chugging along. And God says, if you have a problem, I have all this for you. I'll, I'll make room for you. I'll, I'll wait for you if you would just come to me. And I think what this means for us as we look at this example of Abraham, you may be wondering, why does this matter? What does this mean for me? This is some dude back in Genesis. <laughs> what does that mean for today? What does this mean for me? Well, I'll tell you. Revelation 1, 5 through 6, this is insane. It says, to him who loves us, Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Notice, what are we called? Kingdom. Priests. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Church, what this means for us today, right now, if you are a born-again believer, you have given your life to Jesus. He is running it currently. This means that what Abraham is, is what you are now to be for others. A priest. You are called priest. You are holy. Meaning, set apart for what? To be a priest. To show others the goodness of God. To testify how he has rescued you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the marvelous light. Your whole life is to represent God and rule with him in partnership and in faith to say as many people as possible 
They must see the goodness of my God. They must see the beauty of his kingdom of light. That is our job. One of the greatest things perhaps a priest can do is modeled through Abraham. It's prayer. I think a lot of us can look at that and be like, well, yeah, I know. Bible reading and prayer, those are the two things that Christians are supposed to do. But why? Why? Some of you maybe even think, well, if God is sovereign, right, and his will is just going to be done, then, then why pray at all? God's just sovereign, right? So it's going to happen. His will is going to be done. And I say, the reason we pray is because God's will for your life is to pray. There is a way that God has designed and orchestrated this world in ways that there is some mystery. And yet, the same way that justice and mercy can come together in a righteous God, in the same way sovereignty and prayer can come together in a righteous God. There is something that partners with God in the way that he has designed prayer to see things happen that otherwise would not have unless we asked. And the, where I get this biblically, James 4.2, perhaps one of the simplest verses about prayer. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't have because you don't ask. How many times do we say, God, build me a cabin, and you give him two sticks? For real. We would never go anywhere and expect, well, there better be a sirloin steak on my plate. You never ordered one. How would they know? And in the same way, God sees our hearts, but it's saying, God, I trust you in partnership to ask, and I trust you with the results. And so prayer matters. Prayer is no small task. It is going to a sovereign God and seeing the miraculous happen. And I believe, to be honest, prayer may be some of the greatest work that some of us in this room will ever do. I mean that. I mean, for real, one day you you will enter the kingdom of heaven and you will get to see firsthand all of the lives that your prayers changed. You get to see all the circumstances that unraveled because you decided to ask God. And there's something beautiful about, again, partnership with God as a priest to represent man to God and God to man. And yet, all that being said, being a priest doesn't just pray. It doesn't just mean escaping to a prayer closet or a prayer meeting or a quiet time. There is so much more than just prayer. In fact, if we remember what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, the the Greek word Christianos, not Ronaldo, Christianos, literally means little Christs. You know, this was a derogatory term that the Greeks started calling the early Christians. Christianos. You look, sound, smell, act just like that Christ. It's derogatory. He was meant to mock them and say, look how close they look, just like him. And so we are. And so we are. Little Christ. Not saying that we're God, not saying that we have all of his infinite attributes, just saying both in our heart and in our works. May Jesus be seen. And some of those works that we do is not just prayer, but we look, what does Jesus send out his disciples with? Matthew 10, 8. How many pulpits How many pastors need to equip the congregation with this verse? This is not just for an apostolic movement. This is what Jesus sent out his church. 
as you see it in Acts. We see it throughout the new covenant. We are still in that covenant, by the way. And so this applies directly to us. Matthew 10, 8, Jesus himself sends out his disciples saying, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Church, this is why we unashamedly have the ministries that we do. It's unashamedly why you will see us pastors anoint with oil and pray for healing. We unashamedly tell our struggling friends that there is good news, that they do not have to stay stuck or without hope, but that there is a God who loves them and has a plan for their life, a purpose for their life. They, he values them and loves them more than they could ever know, and he's so much that he sent his only son to take our place that they could be forgiven and reconciled to their creator. It is why we unashamedly ask God for any kind of prophetic words. Say, God, I don't know what to say, but I know you do. And instead of rushing on in my own wisdom or strength, I'm going to wait on you. And if there's anything you want to give, any words, any pictures, any downloads, I'm, I'm, I'm yours. I want to be your priest. It's why we unashamedly help people understand that there may be more to their story or their struggles. That there is a real enemy who hates them, wants them to fail, wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And we are unashamed to call him out on it. We are unashamed to say in the name of Jesus, we bind that, cast that out, and we replace all those lies with Jesus' truths. We're unashamed to do that. Why? Because we're priests. We're little Christs. And so many stories I have with so many of you. I look across the room. I've met with many of you in hospital rooms, home visits. You stepped into the care office and I've seen your struggles. I've seen the ways that you've been mistreated. I've seen the loved ones that you've lost. I've seen the sicknesses and the struggles that you're dealing with. I see the pain in your heart from how people have hurt you. I know there's hurt in this room. And we can try to hide that with a Sunday smile and a handshake. But deep down, you're begging for a priest. You're begging for someone to notice you, to see you, to care for you. And if I get the joy, if we get the joy as a church to do that on account of Christ, with Christ in us and through us, is there a greater joy? Is there a greater fulfillment? I mean, I can share countless stories. I remember a couple weeks ago, Deborah Thompson got baptized right here. And if you remember her story, I was there the day that that prophetic word was given. And it was so normal. People think prophetic is weird. It's this, this odd thing, extracurricular thing that the church shouldn't be pursuing. It's just praying. It's just listening and asking God to speak and being willing to take a faith risk. I was there that morning. I was the one who gave the word. <laughs> and as we were praying, I just felt like God gave me this picture I didn't know what it meant. I felt like he was directing it towards Deb as my heart just felt compassionate. I just looked at her and I felt compassion. And I shared that word and said, I don't know what this means for you, but I feel like I get this picture for you. And immediately started sobbing. I said, I, I know what that means. And as she shared, it was her addiction to alcohol. And later I found out through some of her friends, she shared that that very day, she went home 
and cleared out all the alcohol in her house. I mean, that, you, you can't write stories like that. You can't write stories like that. I had no power in that. And then, and then two months later, she gives her life to Jesus. Like, come on. This is the heart of a priest. It's a joy to be your pastor, but what a joy to be a priest, to partner with God and say, God, I, I, there's no seminary degree. There's no theology books that can write these kind of stories. It's in the heat of the moment, in the trenches with real people going through real struggles where we believe in a real God who has real hope and real power to change. And that's what a priest does. We make ourselves available. Say, I'm, I'm available and willing. A&W Christian. Another story, I got to pray with a woman. She was going through stuff that I won't say, but it was the kind of stuff that makes a pastor, makes anyone just want to throw their hand through some drywall. Abuse. Abuse that no one should have to go through. And she's in my office, crying, pouring out her heart to me. And as she's going through all of the things that have happened to her, we start to talk about the different ways she's trying to cope with this and deal with this, what truth she's believing. And she's very honest with me. And she says, I'm not dealing with this in, in the most godly of ways. I'm believing a lot of lies. And it's really hard to believe truth right now. It's really hard to trust the goodness of God right now. And as we're praying together, just praying, I just give her space to confess that to God, to bring that before him to replace any lies with truth. And as this happening, she, she stops me. And she said, yeah, I, I don't know what's happening right now. But my hearing is in and out. Uh, the colors in this room are really scary. And I have no idea what's happening. And you can sniff that out right away. That's satanic, that's demonic. Of course, the enemy would hate to see one of God's daughters gets set free through confession. Of course, Satan would hate to see someone feel seen and loved by the Father in that moment. And so we prayed, in the name of Jesus, we bind that and cast that out right now, in Jesus' name, and it stopped. We continued to pray. More things started happening, weird things that, again, you, you can't make up. It's just one time she looks down and says, why are my hands blue? And I don't know what they were. They just were blue, I mean, Weird stuff that at this point I said, forget that. That's the enemy. We're going to keep praying. And we prayed. And she was able to confess and say, God, I renounce that. I throw that off. That's not me. I put that off and I put on my identity in Christ again. And she walked out of that office free. And so, again, we're, we're not rejoicing that the demons are under our authority we rejoice that names were written in heaven. And we rejoice that those people remember that. That's right. And they walk in that. They experience that.
I had one last story I can just share briefly. I got to pray for a young lady. She walked in, said, it's been really hard. My, I don't know what to say, but it's just like hard in marriage, hard in friendships and relationships. It always feels like I'm incompetent. It always feels like I'm less than. It always feels like I'm so insecure wherever I go, and I'll always mess things up. And we kind of got to the root of that. And not as a scapegoat, but I think as a valid reason, she shared with me that growing up, her dad just constantly tore her down with his words. Constantly made her feel like you're always going to mess things up. You'll always be in the way. You'll always be like this. And just constantly tore her down. And so as we prayed, I instructed her to remember those are lies from the pit of hell. That's not who you are. That's not how your heavenly father speaks of you. And she began to take hold of how God sees her, what Jesus says of her. And she began to proclaim that and receive that and trust that in faith. She reported to me later, she, she felt free and has continued to walk in freedom. She says things in her marriage have changed. Things in her friendships, her workplace. She says, I've never felt so secure. I've never felt like even tangible things have changed in my life where, where I'm not messing up as much. I'm not so afraid anymore. I feel loved by God in ways that I haven't. She also reported to me, my chronic back pain is gone. Things like that. Again, we celebrate physical healings, but we celebrate the emotional and spiritual healing that happens only through Christ. We celebrate all of it because it is clearly God's hand at work. And so just, I share these stories not not to boast or say, look at my ministry, look how glamorous it is. I'm saying that every one of us can have a ministry like that. You don't have to be a pastor of care. You don't have to have a full-time vocation in it. If you are willing to listen to people and pray with people, my goodness, I just wonder what our area could look like. If every one of us said, I can do that, because you can. And Jesus said, you are called to it. And we have to understand the heart in all of this is not, again, to build this fancy ministry. You see, the heart of a priest doesn't care about recognition. The heart of a priest doesn't chase signs and wonders. The heart of a priest doesn't chase emotional highs. You see, the heart of a priest looks at hurting, broken, and sinful people and says, I can no longer look at them with disdain or indifference. Because I have personally known and seen firsthand the compassion of a God who owed me nothing. I have seen the love of Jesus in my life. I have tasted and seen the sweetness and goodness and gentleness and tenderness of Jesus. And no longer can I look at a dying world and say, I forget them. It's too much work. They're, they're too lost anyway. I don't agree with them. Too much work, too much energy. A priest says, I don't care. I will approach God in fear. I will approach God in boldness and I will press through like Christ did for the sake of those souls. That's what a priest does. Because that's the heart of God. And we represent the heart of God as priests. And so maybe you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, that's, 
some wonderful, fantastical stories that I'll never see in my life. I'll never be able to be qualified or equipped for that. They say, yes, you can. Let me tell you, how does this play out tangibly and practically? We need to understand that priests are not these extraordinary people. Priests are ordinary people doing ordinary kingdom work, doing ordinary things for an extraordinary God. That's it. Everyone in this room can see that. Everyone in this room can participate in that. You have to believe that. You must believe it because it's true. So what are some practical steps? Yes, we have to get the heart of compassion right. But that compassion always overflows into action. And that action can be simple things. As we partner with the Holy Spirit in faith, it can look like things like getting plugged into the different ministries. Come to the waiting room. Come to seek nights. Get involved with student ministry or kids ministry. All these different outlets that you are able to function as a priest on behalf of God. All of these ministries are, are meant to equip you. And so very practically, if Sunday mornings bless you, don't keep them to yourself. Invite others. It's a simple ask. Saying, hey, this really blesses me. I wonder if this could bless someone else. Send the text. Make the phone call. Knock on the door. Ask the coworker. Simple things. Not again, not extraordinary things. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. A great one is, is asking if you can pray for people. For real. Like, nothing crazy. Like, go and ask your waiter at Applebee's, can I pray for you? Ask your doctor at your next doctor visit, any way I can be praying for you? Ask your neighbor, your coworker, your babysitter, your daycare worker, whoever it is, how can I be praying for you? And I can tell you, I have never once struck out with that question. No one has ever said, forget you, no. They've, they've always said, yeah. Because again, there is a broken and hurting world. You give them a slimmer gl glimpse of hope, something that could actually help them and bless them, they're gonna say, yes. And that's our job as priests. Like, Ask these people, come to the sauna with Roy and I and pray for strangers in the sauna. Like, for real, whatever it takes, do ordinary things. Like, these are ordinary things. And here's the difference maker. Don't just ask how you can pray. Pray for them right then and there. Like, don't say, okay, I'll be praying. Pray for them right then and there. There is nothing like ushering in the presence of heaven and God right then and there. There's something different about that. It's practical. It's ordinary. And maybe the last question I want to address is why. Why does any of this matter again? Like we see that scripturally. We see it practically. But at the end of the day, we have to see the heart behind it or it won't stick. And it all goes back to the ending as I, as I kind of land the plane here in the last little bit here. It goes to the ending of this conversation between Moses and God. Verse 33, it says, And the Lord went his way, when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels unsatisfying. <laughs> a story this grand, he, he's worked God all the way down to 10, and he says, okay, God goes his way, Abraham goes his way. Like, I don't know about you, but that feels like when the movie ends in a way, you're like, what the, like, for real, like, why does the dog always have to die? Like, you know, the, that, those kind of endings? But like, this is what it feels like. Like, what? 
Like, if I could ask the question, I think if anyone reading this could ask the question, we're saying, Abraham, why didn't you ask him if he'd do it for one? Which if we have read our Bibles, we know that God would answer with a resounding yes. And it makes you wonder, why did Abraham maybe not ask this? I don't know, but if I were to guess, I think Abraham probably looked at his own life. He said, God, I've had all the right conditions. You've made me a promise I didn't deserve. You've met me and continued to walk with me faithfully, even though I've been faithless. And, and even I couldn't be that one. I think that's what stops him. I think he realizes, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah is wicked. They probably don't have one. But without even looking at them, I look at my own life. I look in the mirror. And Abraham said, I don't think even I could be that righteous man. And yet we know on this side of the cross and on this side of the story, we of course know there would be one righteous man in all of human history. And that would be Jesus. Jesus would be the perfect priest. He'd be the one to represent the heart of God perfectly. He would trust and obey God perfectly. And he would be the one to bridge the gap as he would anchor himself in being able to relate completely and fully and truly to humans and be able to relate completely, fully, and truly with God. And he was able to anchor in both and say, I'm going to bridge it together. And the bridge is going to be my life. The bridge is going to be my blood. And anyone who walks across that bridge, you get forgiven. You get reconciled to your creator. You get to walk in purpose and the values and the mission and vision for your life that was always meant to be. And then you get to walk across the priest and become a priest. And you get to walk back and, and, and you get to show people the goodness of God that you have seen in your own life. That is what it means to be a priest. And we see that through Jesus most clearly. And the good news is that Jesus wasn't just our priest on the cross, but Jesus continues to be our great high priest today. If we read in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Hallelujah. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Just like Abraham. Doesn't that sound like him? Boldly approaching the throne of a gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Hebrews 7.25 goes on. Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You know what this means, church? This means that Jesus lives to care for you and to pray for you. Do you know, you can pray to God. Did you know that God prays for you? John 17, we see this, the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for his followers in the garden before he's about to be crucified. Look at the things he prays for. Jesus prays that we would know God and him, Jesus Christ. Jesus prays that we would be protected from apostasy, wrong teaching, wrong doctrine about God. He prays that we would be one in spirit with him and the Father. He prays that we would be filled with his joy, that we would be kept from the evil and sanctified through his word, remain unified in him throughout the generations, letting our love convey his message to the world to join him in heaven for all eternity and to experience the same kind of love that he and the Father share. Did you know that Jesus prays for you, those things? 
says forever and always, that right now he is praying for each and every one of us who are his, that this would be true of us. He's praying for us. God prays for us. And, and we need to hear that. Because if we're honest, many of us, if not all of us, are coming in weary to some degree this morning. Weary in marriage, weary in parenting, weary in friendships, weary in our jobs. We're just weary, just tired, feeling like every day it's getting a little bit harder to find any kind of reason to get out of bed in the morning. Some of us are feeling shame from past mistakes or maybe just recent mistakes. It's still fresh coming in this morning. Some of us feel beat down by the enemy. Like, feeling like this life is just war. I can't get a break. I can't get ahead. Some of us are feeling anxious. Some of us are feeling worried. Will God actually be good on his promise? Will, will God actually provide what I need? Will, has God forgotten me? Has God has God done with me this time? Did, did I finally go too far? Well, God's finally had enough. And he says, no. Because I pray for you. And I can relate if that's you this morning. It's been a wild roller coaster this last month. In just the last couple weeks, car stolen, Jayla's job's on the line for no fault of her own, just being taken. We'll go to our OB appointment with baby and we find out right after that appointment that her grandma's in the hospital. We continue to see friends struggle with infertility. We continue to see friends move away. We continue to see our parents struggle. We see all of this in a couple weeks. And this last week, just this last week, I was going to have my quiet time, not really wanting to, to be honest having a hard time even opening my Bible. Asking the question, God, where are you? Where are you? I thought you were a good God. Why is all of these terrible things happening? Why, why does it not feel good right now? I remember I, I just started weeping. Just, just couldn't have the strength to open my Bible, couldn't have the strength to pray. I just... God, where are you? And in the most gentle, non-condemning voice, I felt like God was just saying, you have little faith. You have little faith. Oh, if only you knew how much I love you. If only you knew how much all of this was worked out. This is all part of my plan. And you can trust me. And he met me in this verse that I'm going to leave you with. As I cried out to God, and I literally had the thought, God, are you just punishing me? After he says this. And he met me with this verse, Luke 22, 32. This is in uh, the context where Peter is going to deny Jesus. Jesus tells him that. He's like, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I'm not. Jesus says, Peter, yes, yes, you are. But he says, listen, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to shake you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life, your faith, everything. But, verse 32, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
You know, one of the greatest things that Jesus prays for us is not that our circumstances would be better or more convenient, but he prays for our faith. He says, I've prayed for your faith that through this storm, through this trial, through this hurt, through this pain, through this unforgiveness, through this mistreatment, your faith will not fail. And what an assurance. He doesn't say, and if you turn again, Peter. He says, and when you turn again. Because when I pray for you, and I pray for your faith, it is sustained. And so when your faith is strengthened, go and strengthen other people's faith as well. And that's the heart of a priest. It's not easy. It's not glamorous. It's hard. And it takes Jesus being our great high priest to pray for our faith so that it will not fail. And so that when our faith is strengthened, we can strengthen others as well. I'll leave you with one verse, or excuse me, one quote by Dane Ortland, uh, the book Gentle and Lowly. If you have a chance to read it, one of my favorite books of all time. And just meditate this as I close out. He's so honest with this quote. Our prayer life stinks most of the time. Guilty. But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud for you in the next room? He says, few things would calm us more deeply. This is what it means. As we ever live to care and pray for people, remember that we have a great high priest who ever lives to care and pray for us. And he prays that our faith will not fail. And so it won't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray a blessing right now over everyone in this room that as you pray for their faith, I join you in that prayer. I pray that God, their faith would be so strengthened whatever they're going through. I pray that the voice of the enemy would be silenced in the name of Jesus and that Jesus, your voice would be so loud and tender in their lives and in their thoughts right now as reminding them who you are promises that you will be good on, the way that you provide hope and peace, joy and rest, so that our faith will not fail and that we can go out from this place and model you to a dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.